Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining us in the Restorative Lens Podcast, where we bring together voices in the restorative justice community to share insight, practices, and perspective. Each series of the Restorative Lens will be focusing on different topics within the field of restorative justice and give a space to hear from those who are most directly impacted or involved in the work. The Restorative Lens is supported under the National Center on Restorative Justice, and we are your hosts. I am Tomei Douglas. And I am Alana Ojibwe. We're so excited to share with you the launch of this first series, which features the voices of several authors from the book, Colorizing Restorative Justice. Colorizing Restorative Justice is a collection of 18 different essays by 20 practitioners and scholars of color, exploring the issues of racism and colonization within the field of restorative justice and restorative practices. We hope you enjoy listening. So I guess we can, um, you want to start, Alana? You want to lead us into our introduction? Of Jahan? <laughs> sure. Um, so... I guess similarly, could you just talk a little bit about um, how you got involved in in this work and and what inspired that path um, to get involved with transformative justice work? And I I will preface that coming back because I do specifically want to talk about um, talking about transformative justice within the context of this book that um, you know in the context of restorative justice, and I I think that's your your chapter and your um, bringing that in, I think is such uh, such an important perspective. So I think, um, yeah, curious to hear how you specifically got involved in the transformative justice work. Sure, I would, I would say that um, in my life, you know, one of the, the callings uh, I've discerned and I, I use a lot of kind of faith related language because I I that's a, such a significant part of my my identity and myself my person um is is one of these kind of callings is as a bridge builder and so a lot of the work that I've done in the world is related to connecting you know different people connecting different areas connecting different ideas and so you know I think you know, to answer your question around how I got involved in in transformative justice, the first thing I would say is that I, I wrote the chapter not as someone who has this deep bench in transformative justice work, you know, the same way as, as a lot of folks like Miriam Kaba or Mimi Kim or Rachel Herzing, you know, some of these names you might be familiar, some of the people that I talk about learning from in the chapter, it's not because I have this deep bench in that work or because I'm immersed in the day-to-day activism and organizing like within transformative justice praxis, but it's because my my earlier learning and experience um, with and learning about transformative justice has continued to transform the way that I see the world, the way that I think about healing, safety, and justice, and then also then you know, how I think about restorative justice and how I teach restorative justice, you know, in my job as a professor and as somebody who does, you know, training at the Zaire Institute for Restorative Justice and in our Summer Peace Building Institute. 
And, you know, as I talk about in the chapter, when, when, when a number of students, especially students who have experienced um, very much directly systems of, of white supremacy, racism, patriarchy, you know, homophobia, um, because of their experiences as particularly women of color, or some of my students who are white, um, but are, who are also queer, and, and, and asking about restorative justice, like where does restorative justice, you know, the, the, the material that I'm reading or the practices that I've been trained in, where do they speak to these questions? Like, how does it speak to these questions around systemic oppression and structural violence and state-sponsored violence? And I wasn't able to give them like concrete answers from the body of like scholarship or the materials that were kind of that are most accessible, you know, to kind of assign for them to read or look at. But I then had to re reach back, you know, to my experience and with transformative justice. And so that experience dates back to, I would say about, about 15 years ago is 2021. Um, yeah. About, about 15 years ago, when I was involved with youth organizing in Washington, D.C., as someone who at the time was also doing lots of other things, was also a Ph.D. student, um, you know, just also um, had just relocated um, back to the Washington, D.C. area after um, completing college, someone who was reconnecting back to community organizing and activism that I had first gotten involved in as a high school student and had joined a number of different organizations in the area related to kind of that, that work that I'm so passionate about in terms of activism. So I was involved in especially in kind of youth youth organizing as, um, as someone who was in my early um, or mid-20s at the time. And a lot of the work that we were we were doing ended up kind of being was around kind of fighting policies that were introduced in the name of addressing youth violence, but were actually doing much more to criminalize and incarcerate and put young people, particularly young people of color, in in harm's way. And so a, a lot of that work was um, was really changing the way that we talked about violence, right? And changing the way, like changing these narratives and in, in order to um, increase understanding and support for why we need approaches that don't rely on, you know, um, policing, you know, detention, these carceral policies. And, and so that, that really was a big, um, was a big part of, what led me to work in, in transformative justice and its connection to young people, kind of these questions around how do we think about violence more deeply that was coming up in this work of youth organizing. But even more so, I would say what initially attracted me and propelled me was my own experience, right? Because it was within this organization that I, I came to, I learned about and then I came to join. It was then called Insight, right? Mm -hmm. um, in insight, women, gender, non-conforming, and trans people of color against violence. That's actually the the new name of the organization. Insight, women, gender, non-conforming, trans people of color against violence. So it's formerly known as Insight, women of color against violence, and that's what it was called when I got involved. A network of radical feminists of color organizing to end violence, really in all its forms, um, as it impacts, especially at the time, um, women of color, and. And what really attracted me and got me involved with this organization, our local chapter in DC, 
was that it gave me a, an, a, a way to connect what was already at that time, kind of my politics around prison abolition with my own personal experiences of violence within my family, including um, child sexual abuse, my experiences of violence like from neighbors, including attempted sexual assault, and a way to really connect my passion for organizing to challenge like injustices of the state, but also to recognize and to name and to confront the intimate mm -hmm. forms of violence that also happens within all of our families and communities, you know, not just those of color, but all of us. But, we, but because, you know, in our communities, we have a special, we often don't name them because of the ways in which the state um, uses that reality with present all of our in our communities to criminalize us and to demonize us and to pathologize us. And so it gave this framework for doing that, got involved in insight. Um, and so I would say that was really the beginning of my journey of learning. Wow, that's amazing. I, I just um, thank you for sharing that. Just listening to you, like so many things that you raised that resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And even just the, the point of... Um, our youth um, on this track from school to the prison pipeline, as they call it. And there's this image I have that I love and it's, um, I wanna show it to you. you. You may have seen this already, but I think this is something I show when I work with um, educators. Can you see this? Mm -hmm. I can. So just for our listeners, I'm showing an image. I'll make sure that we post that to the site so people can download it. And it kind of just shows like what happens when we give up on our young people. Mm. You know, that there's, th these are the, the pathways that are waiting for them that can um, adversely impact their trajectory, right? So, you know, if they're not getting the assistance, there are gains, the judicial system, and um, here we have the welfare system, but all of these things are rooted in the systemic racism that we see taking place. You know, it's all of these things are, there, there's nothing new. And that's why I think we're facing this reckoning within our, our country now with everything that's happening because it's everything is on repeat. Nothing, I remember writing something called Historically Haunted because everything is just coming back because we're not dealing with it. So I'm amazed at how transformative justice from what I understood, um, it really have uses strategies without including officers or the state or institutions. So I'm really curious, like, cause when I think about restorative justice and I think of, um, you know, the person who caused harm and the person who was harmed coming together with the community. How does that work with transformative justice if they're not including police, state and institutions? Sure, and, and I actually, I wanna back up a little bit to go to the image that you showed of this young person like being dropped out of the window. And then it, it says um, of an alternative school, it's a boy and um, I think, believe from the the picture was depicted and um and then the picture you know having these different systems welfare system um gangs and um juvenile justice system saying some went out there will catch them and i i think that oftentimes when when people think about youth 
and um, especially black and brown youth and violence, that kind of image of comes to mind, that kind of kind of uh, a discourse that places young people, um, even even if we we talk about like the root causes, but still places young people as the perpetrators when we talk right. about this. And so I think that a critical intervention that the framework and the philosophy of transformative justice makes it is to really um, expand our understanding of what counts as violence. Mm -hmm. And so similarly to the way in which, you know, the in insight was really has been a leader in saying what counts as violence against women is not only domestic violence, it's not only sexual violence that is like acquaintance rape and, you know, is within our intimate networks, it's also incarceration as a form of violence against women. It's also forced, you know, deportation is also a form of violence against women, war, right? And so similarly as, you know, Insight has like expanded this notion of what counts as violence against women, for me, that was an intervention also into, into what counts as what I, what I began to call and other people organizing with me, violence against youth. Because one of the, the problems has been, you know, when we talk about um, young people and violence, and I wrote, wrote my dissertation about this as well, is like that that frame is so narrow, right? It only focuses our attention on like, well, young people, right, as problems, and it obscures police violence, right? Against them, it obscures, you know, the very, the many ways that they are, um, that they are victimized, right, right. by institutions, um, including the criminal legal system, but also beyond it, the child welfare system. And so I think that like that was a really a big piece for me. In, and I think that's a piece that it also contributes to restorative justice, because even with restorative justice, you know, and I'm writing a piece about this now, and, and even with restorative justice, and even like if in education, it's like, yes, we talk about how it's a alternative to, you know, addressing the school to prison pipeline and school disciplinary practices. But so often we're still focusing on young people's behavior, whatever way that we talk about it as the core problem that restorative justice is introduced to address rather than the forms of violence that they experience yeah. day in and day out, you know, by these institutions in their schools and communities. Right. I'm sorry, Alana. This is so good. And thank you. I, I just want yeah. more. Let me just jump in really quick, Alana, then I'll, I'll pass it to you. because I know We both want, like want to just ask all of these questions. But yeah. So and this is the thing. Why, why I show this image is because educators have this mindset, you know, that I, I'm inspired to educate, empower, you know, but then let's think about what you sign up to do. And then think about what the result is, what's, what the outcomes are, because, you know, even in, in a lot of these trainings, I hear like, well, restorative justice doesn't seem like it's a strong enough punitive measure. And I'm saying, well, it's not. And if we really want to take it back, um, indigenous practices weren't designed for only a punitive response. It really was about building relationships, making meaningful connections. And I know that if I'm an adult and if I don't like someone, <laughs> if I don't like the message that they're saying or I feel like they have an agenda they're pushing on me, the walls go up and I'm an adult and I know this. So it's like I don't understand why we can't see that this happens with our youth in school because they, they experience violence in the educational system you know, in classroom settings, 
you know, and, and I just felt like I, I didn't have a, enough of an understanding um, of transformative justice, but the way you just, you know, explained it just so purely and it was just um, comprehensive. You know, I, I see the importance of it because I honestly, I can admit, I was pushing back a little bit. Like, no, because it has to include this piece with restorative justice. And um, so thank you for educating me on that. Um, I will pass it to you, Alana. <laughs> I just think, I, I also just think the way you described that um, was so great. It reminded me of, um, um, I was working a few years ago at, um, an organization, uh, mental health organization, working with youth and families. And, and one of the best ways I've ever heard, um, trauma described or for educators to recognize it, um, was having us, it was the first day and they had us all sitting in a circle and they handed us a, um, soda can and they were describing a scenario as we kept passing the can. And as they describe these different things, in, in this child's evening to morning, shake it once and shake it again and shake it again. And we keep passing it. And then, and then when you get to school, there was eventually this sort of humiliating event or something where it exploded. And I think, you know, like what you're describing, there's so many, whether it's instances, um, definitely instances where it involves intervention from the state, um, and institutions, but, but even like you're saying, even in RJ, sometimes there's, there's this focus on that specific incident without recognizing all of the other sort of things that went into that culmination. Um, and I think that's such a huge gap that, you know, as you're describing what the goal, what the goals are really, um, it makes so much sense. And it seems it's, it's like, how can you not have all of those other pieces involved in the conversation and in the work? Um, so I, I appreciate that, but I, I am curious to hear your thoughts on, um, and I wonder if you have um, something that comes to mind to give sort of like a case example. Cause to me, I think stories are such a compelling, and I think your chapter in particular is so I so much appreciate really clear examples of organizations doing this and, and personal stories to give just a clear, um, to me, personal stories are some of the most compelling to, to really capture an idea. And, and um, so I'm wondering in sort of this overlap between restorative justice and, and sort of the more traditional state or institutional responses to harm, um, what are, um, say for an example, where there's an instance of harm that comes from um, a police officer? That's not, because I think it, your chapter and, and this work so clearly makes sense to me when it's within a family. Um, so hopefully we can talk about that too. But if it's, if it's someone who is, um, who causes harm, say it's a police officer who causes harm on um, a youth, say it's a young adolescent male. Um, how does transformative justice, the goal of that and looking at various levels of that violence, um, how does it not have involvement with state and institutional, you know, like how do you, 
how are they not in the process of how you address that violence that was caused? I'll, I'll first want to want to say that one is restorative justice and transformative justice are complementary, mm-hmm. and that it's important for us to I think really think about these different approaches within the context for which they were created and within the purposes for which they were created and not to decontextualize them. Because when we decontextualize and we try to apply one thing as like a hammer to hit every nail, then we take it out of its actual origins or really understand for what reason it came about in the first place, right? So I think that, you know, we can talk about that question, but I think first of all, I would just wanna say that that transformative justice, if this body of praxis didn't come about to first and foremost address police violence. Mm. It came about because communities are saying that at the same time, and especially, you know, women of color um, who have been at the forefront of this body of practice have been saying that, yes, at the same time as we are active in movements to address mass incarceration and, you know, we are prison abolitionists. Yes. And we also experience intimate partner abuse. We also experience sexual violence. Our, you know, we also experience um, these forms of harm within our, not only within our communities, but within even the movements that are addressing systemic oppression. And so because we don't believe in depending on the police, because we know they are also a source of harm and violence. We don't we don't believe in this carceral system. We are not at all invested in it and we recognize it as a source of violence. Therefore, we must create ways of addressing intimate violence in ways that don't depend upon the state, right? So that is the context, right? The original context of this body of practice and it's been expanded in lots of other ways, including folks who are saying, you know, we experience, uh, you know, a homophobic violence as, as queer and gender nonconforming. We experience transphobic violence in our communities. That's also at the intersection of white supremacy as, you know, the Audrey, Audrey Lord Project, uh, organization of, of queer, transgender nonconforming people of color who are saying like, yeah, we experience this on our streets in the public by strangers, police have joined into it. So we know that they are not keeping us safe. They've participated in abusing us, harassing us. So we have to figure out ways of creating safety for ourselves in our communities, right? That doesn't rely on this abusive institution and those who are a part of it. So those are like some some concrete examples of the context by which they came about. So they created, you know, a campaign safe outside the system where they're like, let's, how do we organize? Like they did community building. How do we unstranger? How do we know people in our communities? How do we begin connecting with the organizations and businesses in in the communities to say, this is, you know, um, um, can you be a safe place when people are feeling unsafe, are being chased? Can you also intervene when there are, you know, these called microaggressions, there are comments that are being made that are homophobic, that are uh, racist, you know, that are that are sexist? Can you can you help to transform the conditions that actually often lead to and escalate and lead to interpersonal violence? And so I would say that that is like one of the big contributions and many people who have been at the forefront of this work talk about when they say, what's the difference between restorative and transformative justice? It's this focus on not only how do we secure safety, not only how do we hold people accountable, not only like how do we bring people together to find solutions together, but also how do we, transform the conditions that are at the root 
of the harm that has happened. So I would say to come back to your question around police violence and abuse, you know, one of the questions then is what are the concrete conditions, right? What are the systems of oppression that lie at the root of of police violence and how do those conditions become transformed? So it's not just about particular incidents, right? It's about a continuum and it's about a container and a system. But I will also say that, you know, I really appreciated a number of of people and one of the, um, you know, the, the really, I think really good pieces that has been written about this question and comments on this question is by um, both Miriam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie. They wrote a an op-ed in Essence Magazine back in the summer. Um, and, and, and it's called, We Want More Justice for Breonna Taylor Than the System That Killed Her Can Deliver. And um, and in this piece, they they really talk about this this framework around reparations that um, has been somewhat, I would say, used in, in Chicago. But it talks about repair, restoration, acknowledgement, secession, and non-repetition. And that's a framework I would say that is especially um, based in restorative justice, right? Reparations. But we can also think about the ways in which focusing on like, how do we transform the conditions? This question that comes from transformative justice is also connected to that. So they talk about, um, you know, in the article that in terms of, you know, thinking about questions of, of, um, of accountability, you know, that includes immediate termination of the officers, that includes banning them from any future position, you know, that would allow them to carry a weapon or hold a position of power that can be abused. But they also talk about, you know, repair, compensation for not only her family, but the community. They talk about restoration and healing. And they talk about, you know, they make the statement that I really like. They say that, you know, under a reparations framework, it's not only Brianna's family, but all of us that are entitled to more than an individualized response to what is a systemic problem. So, you know, um, immediate cessation of the actions that caused her death. Um, that not only includes things like no-knock warrants, but also includes looking at the forces of gentrification that brought police into her neighborhood in the first place. It's also almost a direct quote. So that's kind of an example of when we talk about transforming conditions, we're not just talking about like immediate, like um, kind of only individual incidences and policies, but looking more whole, wholesale and step back and to look at the variety of conditions that contribute to these individual acts of violence. Mm. Thanks so much. So I like that you talked about the conditions. So I just want to bring it back again to like in the school system, how do you propose um, they start thinking about the use of school safety officers and the police in the educational system. Because right now, like like I said, what I shared, you know, there were times that I actually had to approach the principal of a school and say, you know, if this student agrees to work with me for X amount of time, can you, you know, can we not go down this pathway? You know, and, and his response was, well, you know, if he'll listen, you know, like they just gave up on that process. But it was, to me, the question was, well, will we listen? Because students have a voice and that's what they're often stripped of is their voice, their right to articulate themselves and, and share what's happening with them and to be treated and taken serious when they share something. Because, 
you know, I, I've had um, teachers ask me to sit in a classroom and because there was a student, brilliant young um, woman who, young lady who actually pushed back because she said, well, you're not including the full story. You know, this happened around slavery and she was trying to give her her own historical account of something and the teachers shut her down. And I'm sitting in the back of the class. I was just there to observe. And she said, but you asked us to ask questions and now you don't want to answer. So then he says, you're being disrespectful. And he sends her out the classroom, you know, and then I had the opportunity though um, to meet with him because he came to me like, you know, that's not usually how it goes. And I said, actually, this is how it goes. <laughs> this is every, this is why I'm here. I was a restorative justice coordinator at that time. You know, and so I, I just want to know, like, what are some things you can propose based off the work that you've done with um, youth-led organizations? And I'm taking you've done participatory research. I think I read that, too, somewhere with youth. You know, uh, earlier, I really, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that you shared that that story, Tomei, because I think it speaks it speaks so much to the reality, right? It's it's like you said, it's that it's not an anomaly, right? That situation, it is it is absolutely um, very common, and it is actually, I think, the number one reason I believe um, uh, research attests and and also the including the experiences of of youth organizers in schools attests that the number one reason the young people are suspended uh, and and particularly students of color as and, and even more specifically drilling down to to black girls of the the subject of your story number one reason the suspended is for citing for insubordination right disrespect um, not conforming to the behavioral standards set by um, and particular white educators, though also educators of color also have a role in, the, in this as well, right? We are um, internalized these these also um, internalized racism, internalized these these things as well. So, and um, and so I think that's really important for both um, in terms of when we think about you know restorative justice, because if restorative justice practitioners if we're not in scholars and advocates are not recognizing that the issue that we're addressing first and foremost is not a behavioral issue of students, it's how students are being framed and treated in schools, right? How they're being regulated, how they're being um, punished for not conforming to white supremacist standards of what is expected of them, right? Of being of being expected to just kind of show up to a school system that is first and foremost wants to teach them to be obedient, which means to conform, right, to the the ways of of kind of operating within a white supremacist capitalist society. Like we want to teach you to obey and to kind of show up and do these mm -hmm. things, but not to ask critical questions, not to be deep thinkers, not to, you know, kind of resist the status quo. Um, and so I think, you know, and so, you know, earlier I talked about one of my roles, you know, that I've discerned calling as a bridge builder. I think one of my other, other roles that I've, I'm called to is to is is someone who amplifies the voices and visions of other people. So to answer your question, I'm going to answer it in a way that really amplifies what other folks are calling for. And in this instance, I'm actually going to amplify, you know, what uh, 
you know, the movement for Black Lives is calling for, the, what, what students who've been organizing for restorative justice in their schools have been calling for, and that is for police out of schools. Was my answer to get them out. They don't belong in a school, right? I mean, we're working toward, for me, working toward a society in which we can live without cages, like a a police police, um, free society. But I think one very concrete way that we work toward that now is to remove police out of schools. It is abhorrent. It that is. schools have 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 police officers, but they students don't have access to counselors. They don't have access to school nurses, but they have police officers in their schools. That is a tr- that is violence right there, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are a number of campaigns that students have been um, waging. Um, there is an amazing report that I would highly recommend. Um, folks to um, read if they haven't already that talks about this work. It was released by the Advancement Project in collaboration with the Alliance for Educational Justice, which is an incredible um, coalition of of youth-led organizations that have been involved in community organizing in their schools, particularly within the area of education. That's the Alliance for Educational Justice. And they have released a report called We Came to Learn a call to action for police-free schools. And they talk about the history of policing and specifically policing in schools. Kind of the, um, they talk about the assaults that young people regularly face, you know, in schools. And they have some case studies of that. They also have case studies of models of how to end school policing. And they have an action kit that they've also released on how to organize for police-free schools. So it's a really great resource. And I think that that their work um, overall, not just their work around police-free schools, but the work of of these young people, of these students who, who really, to be quite frank, don't get adequate attention in this work around restorative justice. I think more than any other group of people who are responsible for the advancement of restorative justice in schools, it's young people of color who have been organizing for that as part of their work against the school to prison pipeline, as part of their work you know, to, for educational equity in schools. But when people talk about kind of these wins, when they talk about you know, restorative justice being introduced into this school or this school district, typically the young people who wage that campaign to bring that, their story is erased and invisibilized. We don't recognize Mm. their work. But that is a crucial part of the work of restorative justice is the organizing work that especially students have done to actually bring that into their schools. They they fight for years. And a lot of the wins we even saw this summer around police out of schools, they weren't new um, campaigns. Those campaigns have been going on for quite some time. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I just, I didn't know, I didn't know <laughs> like to the depth of um, that that was taking place, especially in, in the public school system here in New York City, you know, because it's prevalent. It's, it happens a lot, you know, and I found myself, the other thing I, I noticed too was I was always um, contacted to go to the office when there was an issue with a a black student, you know? So I was that black restorative justice coordinator who was, they just kept sort of like trying to shift me towards them. And I was okay with that. But part of my, my role, I felt while I was there is we need to educate the um, teachers. Absolutely. They need to learn how to talk to students, you know, so that students can listen because they nicknamed me um, the teen whisperer. 
And it's because my children actually taught me how to listen to young people. You know, they, they were able to stop and say, you know, you know, mom, we feel powerless when you say things like, I pay the bills, I buy all your clothes, I put food on the table. And I had to listen to that, you know, as an adult and the mother knowing I'm parenting them, but they have a voice. They have a right to share what they their experience is because they're, you know, individual thinking beings, you know, and, and we need to treat them as such. So I really appreciate that. And it just makes me, you know, um, want to circle around. I still have some students that are connected to me from that high school because they graduated. So they just keep me abreast with what's going on. And part of, you know, what I did there was really just listen to them, listen to them, advocate, give them strategies on how they can advocate for themselves and even teach them, you know, how to, if you want to be the boss of your life, then there's some different ways you have to change in terms of, for example, um, one student was complaining, well, you don't know what this teacher says to me, you know, when we're in class. So I said, okay, if something is said inappropriate, pull out your notepad, you write it down, write the time down, write the students that were there, if there's a teaching assistant there. I said, and then you can go home, share that with your mom, then reach out to the teacher, see if it could be, you know, resolved like that without bringing in the principal. But of, of course, teachers usually um, push back and not all of them did because some actually came forward and said, you know, I think we need to have a, a conference, a restorative conference or, you know, sometimes a re-entry circle. But I just, I, I'm sorry, I'm just excited. My, my migraine is lifted and it was such a wealth of information that you gave and I'm pulling up the information. I just went to advancementproject.org. So thank you for that resource. Um, it's hearing conversations like this that gives me um, hope more hope because it it gets hard listening to the young people sometimes and I'm like I feel like things aren't being done fast enough but just seeing these wins like you said it's something that we should celebrate and and amplify and raise up mm -hmm. So um, I really appreciate that. But we do want to um, offer you the opportunity to close us out and share whatever words of wisdom, whatever you want to say. We just want you to take the space and close us out. Um, I, th I think the other thing I just want to say, you know, to wrap up is that the work that I've shared, everything, you know, much of it, perhaps all of it is not something that is unique to me. Right. I was. I was sharing from things that I've learned, people who've taught me, Jonathan Stith, who's the organizing director of um, the um, uh, Bold Black Organizers um, Project, Black Organizers Leading with Dignity, and is also one of the directors of Alliance for Educational Justice. It's been one of my teachers and um, co-conspirators over many years, the work of transformative justice leaders that I've named and many more, um, the founders of Insight, the um, and and so many more people, um, you know, Sujatha Baliga and Restorative Justice, Sonia Shah. There's so many people. So I just want to end by mentioning some resources. Um, I like to shout out a chapter that Jonathan Stith wrote um, that talks about many of the things we were discussing in relation to youth organizing. People can find that essay. It's a wonderful essay 
on the website of the Zare Institute for Restorative Justice. Um, I co-direct the Zare Institute. And under publications, we actually have a publication that um, on our website that's not yet out in print, but it is coming out in print um, soon. It's called Listening to the Movement, Essays on New Growth and New Challenges in Restorative Justice. And Jonathan Stitt's chapter in that volume is called Bigger than an RJ circle, youth organizing for restorative justice and education. So people are interested in some of these concrete mm. changes that youth organizers have won. He really chronicles a lot of that and that work in that chapter that's on our website. Another resource, uh, just a couple more resources. Another resource that I wanted to shout out is the website, um, transformharm.org. And that website, which was created by Miriam Kaba is an excellent um, just compilation. It's a resource hub about ending violence. It mm. includes introduction to transformative justice. It's got resources around learning about carceral feminism and restorative justice and um, community accountability, healing justice, a really excellent resource abolition. So there's a great, re lots of resources at that site. And then the third uh, resource and final resource that I wanna uh, just let um, folks know about is, if they don't already know, is about Life Comes From It. Life Comes From It is a grant-making circle that I've been honored and really delighted to serve on the advisory circle of and was one of the founding um, advisory circle members. It is a grant-making circle specifically uh, designed with the, with the purpose of resourcing, providing some small grants to people of color who are leading work in restorative justice, transformative justice and indigenous peacemaking. And so people can find out more information about that at lifecomesfromit.org. That's lifecomesfromit, L-I-F-E-C-O-M-E-S-F-R-O-M-I-T.org. And we named this after a chief justice, a former chief justice of the Navajo Nation, Justice Yazi's article um, called Life Comes From It. Um, and he is also a part of our advisory circle. Uh, and so those are the resources that I just want to uh, share that connect to our conversation um, and that have been great resources for me, but um, and also how people, um, especially we can support people of color who are leading this work. So people, if you are not a person of color, please don't apply for a grant from Life Comes From It, but share it with someone who is. Thank you so much Thank for those so resources. Much. I have one last thing because our listeners will want to follow you, contact you. Like, can you give us, um, our listeners, a resource to be able to read more about the work you're doing or just follow you? Can you do that? Thank you. Sure. I, I'm not um, yet into, uh, a person who, who can give uh, um, my social media tags because I'm not a big, I'm not big on social media. So, so. Maybe that will come in the future. But for right now, one of the, the best ways to connect with me and my work is through the Zare Institute for Restorative Justice, which I co-direct with Carl Stauffer, uh, a great also leader in this work who I've learned a lot from over the years. And the website is zare-institute.org. We have monthly webinars that usually happen the third Wednesdays of every month from 4.30 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. We're also in a strategic planning process. So in the months to come, you'll see a lot of changes on our website and in our work. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. Thank you so much for the conversation. It was great to, to talk with both of you and I'm looking forward to connecting with you more, you know, yes. outside, outside of this time. Thank Absolutely. you so much.
thank you for taking time to be here with us today. And we hope you stay tuned for our next episode. And for more information about colorizing restorative justice or contacting the authors or learning more about the National Center on Restorative Justice and our partner organizations, please go and check out the link in our bio. This project is supported by grant number 2020-MUCX-K001, awarded by the Bureau of Justice Assistance. The Bureau of Justice Assistance is a component of the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, which also includes the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the National Institute of Justice, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, the Office for Crimes, Victims of Crime, and the SMART Office. Points of view, images, or opinions in this document and are those of the author do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice.